Section 9 of The Vegetable Garden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Vegetable Garden by Ida Dandridge Bennett. Chapter 7 Transplanting. It is a question whether the time at which tender plants shall go into the ground is a matter of prudence or of courage. If one has a good hotbed well stocked with plants on which to draw, then he either fears his fate too much or his deserts are small. Who fears to put it to the touch and win or lose it all if the weather and soil are in a favourable condition for planting, for there is no question that one often gains two or three weeks by early planting. Nevertheless, the chances are against it, and it is not to be recommended where plants must be purchased, or all one stock is put into the ground at once. It may be accepted as a rule that warm weather early in March or April will be followed by a cold spell in early May, and that plants put into the ground ahead of this period will be apt to suffer, if indeed they do not perish outright. The kind and condition of the plants will have much importance in deciding the time at which they may be transferred to the open ground. If cabbage plants have been properly hardened off, they may go into the ground much earlier than if very tender. For this reason, plants which were started from seed sown in September of the previous year and carried through the winter in cold frames, or those from seed in spring and well hardened, can go into the ground as early as it can be worked in the spring but tender plants from hotbeds, started the middle of March or 1st of April at the north, should not be set out before the 1st of May, and even then should have been well hardened off by exposure to the weather, nights as well as during the day, for a week or more. Cabbage plants which show a whitish-green shade are too tender for outdoor life, and it will be better to wait until they show a film of blue over the foliage. Tender plants, like peppers and eggplants, should not go into the ground until settled warm weather, which at the north will be any time from the 20th of May to the 1st of June. Before commencing the transplanting of any vegetables, the ground should be thoroughly prepared by ploughing and dragging, both ways, and floating off, or if spading is necessary, it should be very thoroughly done, so that the soil is entirely broken up and pulverised, and the steel rake should be used to get the surface into as fine a condition as possible. The lines for the plant should be set, and the distance apart the plants are to stand in the rows indicated. Market gardeners use a marker consisting of a long pole with a cross piece at one end of the length of the distance apart of the rows, and provided with a triangular piece of wood as a marker or peg at each end. This is drawn over the ground in each direction, and a plant set at each intersection of the lines. It is very little more trouble to use a garden line and reel and the result is much straighter lines. A garden tape, which has the feet marked in red numbers, is handy in this connection, and as a hundred-foot line is inexpensive, it will be found a very profitable thing to have about the garden. It will much simplify the planting to have the rows marked out and the holes dug before any plants are lifted from the beds. The hotbed should have been well watered the night before, and if the number of plants is not large, Planting may be delayed until the late afternoon of the following day. Planting large numbers of plants in this way may be done in several days. Great care should be exercised in lifting the plants from the beds. 
they should not be grasped by the handful in the hand and pulled up like so many weeds a process which leaves most of the roots in the ground but should have the trowel passed well down below their roots and a section lifted carefully out the plants being separated as they are set the advantage of this method will be apparent if one will compare the roots of the carefully lifted plants with those pulled up in the usual haphazard way the latter will have one long root with a few fragments of side root adhering while the carefully lifted and separated plant will show a fine mass of fibrous roots which will at once take hold upon the soil in the new position and begin to feed the plant and produce growth while the badly lifted plant must first replace the roots of which it was so ruthlessly bereft before it can give any nourishment or assistance to the top only as many plants should be lifted at once as may be gotten into the ground before they wilt keeping the plants in good condition until they are safely in the ground is half the battle in transplanting in setting the plants the directions for the several kinds of vegetables as to distance apart of the rows and space between the plants in the row should be followed but the same general principles must be followed in the transplanting a hole should be made for each plant large enough and of sufficient depth to hold the roots in the same position they occupied in the hotbed and the roots placed so that the plant sets slightly lower than it did in the hotbed draw a portion of the soil about the roots and press it down firmly with the hands if the soil is very dry fill the hole with water and when it has nearly soaked away draw up the remainder of the earth and settle this snugly but not hard about the plant after all is done go over the ground lightly with the trowel so as to leave a fine dust mulch about the plant the work of planting will be much simplified where the plants are set in long rows by setting all the plants in the holes before applying the water one can then go along the rows with a pail and dipper and fill the holes with water and by the time the end of the row is reached the first holes will be ready for filling and by the time all are filled any moisture which may work to the surface will have had time to appear and may be covered with a dust mulch the planting should all be looked over carefully before leaving to see if any wet spots appear when such is the case they must be immediately covered with fresh dry earth no covering or protection of any kind need be given except in case of frost the dust mulch takes the place of shingles paper or anything used to protect from the sun properly planted with the soil firmly pressed about the roots and well watered and the protecting dust mulch preventing the heating of the soil or evaporation of moisture the tops exposed to the fresh air and sunshine the plant is in the best possible condition to withstand the change of position also if it has been watered the night before and lifted in the morning before the sun has materially reduced its strength the plant cells are full of water and will not need to call on the roots for supply until a time they are in a position to respond there is no one fallacy i find so much trouble in overcoming in people i employ about my garden or with whom i come in contact in gardening matters as that of the necessity of protecting newly set plants i was brought up in the orthodox dogmas of gardening and taught to protect everything that went into the ground until it had taken root and i remember the wearisome hours spent in placing shingles paper caps and the like between the plant and any possible rays of the sun and i especially recall several hundred small plants which were once covered with the most scientific of paper caps provided with an attached stick to thrust into the ground to hold them in place 
I spent the leisure hours of several evenings fashioning these out of stiff paper, and I viewed with pride the little army of tents in orderly array that gleamed white in the morning sun. But my pride turned to humiliated dismay when the tents were lifted at eventide that the plants might have the benefit of the night air. Fully fifty per cent of my plants lay wilted and dying. The water in the soil, unhindered by any protecting dust mulch, had, under the ardent rays of the sun, drawn to the surface, and, confined within the narrow confines of the tents, was rapidly reduced to steam, and the poor plants, confined within a Turkish bath, were literally cooked to death. That ended my use of any kind of protection, and I have frequently in the years that have intervened between that disastrous experience and today, set out plants of balsam a foot in height in the hottest sunshine without a sign of wilting, and few plants wilt more readily than these. Having gotten the plants safely and rightly into the ground, let them alone. This is another much-mooted point. Almost everyone who sets out plants during the day is possessed to go pottering around at nightfall with a watering pot or pail and dipper with which to water the newly set plants. This is not only unnecessary, but actually harmful if the plants have been properly set. It destroys the dust mulch and defeats the purpose of all the care in planting. Instead, then, of watering the plants, go over the rows late at night or early in the morning and restore the dust mulch to any part that shows wet. Should rain occur in a day or two after planting, the ground must be gone over as soon as it can be worked with trowel, rake or hoe to create a fresh mulch of dust. There is a prevalent prejudice in favour of planting just before a rain. That is, in certain conditions of the weather, a very good plan to follow. If the rain promises to be a long one, or what is known as a spell of wet weather, the plants may safely go into the ground, but if nothing more than a summer shower threatens, which is likely to be followed by bright sunshine, it will be well to wait until it clears. Bright, settled weather offers the best of conditions for planting, as then one can control conditions. A succession of showers, with bright sunshine, or hot, muggy weather, is the most unfavourable condition. The wet earth, under the influence of a hot sun, steams and cooks, and as there is no fresh wind to carry away the unwholesome vapours, the tender plants suffer as much as we do. Cloudy weather, on the contrary, following after a good rain, affords the very best condition for the establishing of the plant in the ground. As a usual thing, the plants will not require watering for several days, but should any appear to suffer, a hole may be made by the side of the plant with trowel or dipper and this filled with water and the dry mulch restored. In setting some plants in the soil, if of weak growth, it will be well to remove a portion of the top. This is universally done by Dutch gardeners, who remove all but the top leaves of cabbage and cauliflowers, and these two they denude of the upper half of the leaves, and I have found it an advantage in my own practice. It not only relieves the roots of the care of the top to a great extent, but, by lightening the tops, the weight is removed from the stem, which is enabled to retain an upright position. Strip every other plant of its leaves, and it will be standing upright when the full leaf plants are bending weakly under the weight of their tops. Tomato plants are often drawn from crowding, and form what is known as a knee, by bending downward towards the ground, and then assuming an upright position at this point when roots form all along the horizontal part of the stem. 
In setting the plants in the ground, they may be set deep enough to cover this crooked part with advantage. Where the plants have become very crooked and drawn, it is a good plan to make the hole in the form of a shallow trench and lay the plant therein, leaving only the top exposed, first removing the leaves below this point. The exposed part will assume an upright position as soon as growth begins and make fine stocky plants. All newly set plants are at the mercy of cutworms, and the rows must be gone over every morning early to see what, if any, damage has occurred overnight. Wherever a plant is found cut off, immediate search must be made for the culprit. A moment's search will generally discover him just below the surface of the soil, near the decapitated plant. Any loose dirt or rubbish will serve as a hiding place for him, and this tendency may be taken advantage of to trap him by laying pieces of board or chips on the ground near the plant, under which he may hide. But, as he does not hide until he has had his meal, this is much like locking the stable door after the horse is stolen, but then, of course, his capture and execution will prevent his eating other plants. Where the plantings are small, it pays to surround the plants with collars of stiff paper, three or four inches high. These should be pressed into the ground a half inch, and care should be taken to see that there are no worms inside the collar when it is placed. Old tin cans with the bottoms burned out are also a good protection, but the trouble with these is that they must all be gathered up in the fall and disposed of in some way. Another remedy which leaves no afterwork is to poison the worms, and this I have found very successful. Cut clover wet with sweetened water and Paris green is often used, but I prefer a mixture of cornmeal and Paris green, made thin enough to run, and poured in a ring around the stem of the plant, a little way from it. The only objection to this is when chickens are about, but as no little chickens are likely to be abroad at this time of the year, and large ones should be in confinement, this is of little moment, and the first cultivation will turn it under the soil. I usually find it necessary to go over the garden every morning for a week, and each time replace more or less of the plants before I am finally rid of the pests. Cabbages, cauliflowers and tomatoes are the plants most affected by the cutworm, but his depredations do not stop in the vegetable garden, as he is equally destructive to the flower garden, and some vine plants can never be secure without an encircling collar of tin or other substance. End of chapter 7